Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 18 through 29, and the title of this message is A Long Letter to a Tolerant Church, A Long Letter to a Tolerant Church. Of the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches of Asia Minor, this is the longest talking to that any of the churches receive. The longest letter, and we'll be studying this letter this morning. A couple weeks ago, almost a couple weeks ago, on her You and Me Both podcast, Hillary Clinton was talking with the Reverend William Barber, And she offered her opinion on why young people are leaving the church nowadays. She said, and I quote, A lot of young people are leaving the church in part because Christianity has become so judgmental, so alienating, that they think to themselves, well, I don't need that. I don't want to be a part of that. Unquote. She then says, So this should be a time for the church to take a hard look at itself and try to figure out how it can be a real partner in this moment of moral awakening, unquote. She wants the church to evaluate its judgmentalism during this time of moral awakening, and the moral awakening that she is talking about is the social justice revolution. Speaking about this movement of moral awakening that they see happening in our country today, the Reverend William Barber, in his conversation with Hillary Clinton, uses scriptural terminology from Isaiah 58.12 and invites young people to join the church in being repairers of the breach. Repairers of the breach. And he says, and I quote, we really can be repairers of the breach. And we can be a movement, black and white and red and yellow and gay and straight and trans. Whoever we are, we are this movement, unquote. To which Hillary Clinton replied, You are a man after my own heart, my friend. You know, there are many people nowadays who deny Christ utterly and completely renounce any semblance of Christian morality. But then there are those who claim to be Christians, like Hillary Clinton and William Barber, but they advocate for a morality that is completely antithetical to the teaching of Scripture. Hillary Clinton thinks that the modern church should take a hard look at itself in the mirror. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus calling the church to do that very thing. Only Jesus is going to fault this church for not being judgmental enough. He will fault this church for being tolerant of sexual immorality, and he will fault this church for its compromise with other religions in their culture. The church I'm talking about is the church of Thyatira, and the letter that Jesus dictates to this church, as I said a moment ago, is the longest Letter of the Seven. You might think as we come to the church of Thyatira that this is the first time that you have seen the city of Thyatira mentioned in the Bible, but it is not. Back in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul came into the city of Philippi and he met a woman named Lydia 
And in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Luke describes her as a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. And it's actually not coincidental that Lydia is said to be a seller of purple fabrics from Thyatira because Thyatira was known for such things. The city was a commercial and manufacturing center that boasted a beehive of linen workers, garment manufacturing and fabric dyeing along with leather workers and bronze smiths. And each of these industries, you must know, had trade guilds that these tradespeople would be members of. In fact, William Ramsey, the commentator, says that when you look at the archaeological evidence that exists to this day, more trade guilds are known in Thyatira than in any other Asian city. Thyatira was also an intensely religious city given over to the worship of various gods, the most popular among whom was Apollo, who was said to be the son of Zeus. The people of this city were also very patriotic and they worshipped the Roman emperor. And what does all this have to do with our passage for today? Well, to quote from Leon Morris, the problem was that the various trade guilds in the city of Thyatira each had their own patron deity. And membership in these guilds involved attendance at banquets. And this in turn meant eating meat which had first been sacrificed to an idol. And these meals all too readily degenerated into sexual looseness and immorality, especially with religious temple prostitutes that would be brought in for such occasions. So what should a Christian tradesperson do with this dilemma? After all, it would be harder to make a living without belonging to one of these guilds And it would hurt their business if they never showed up at any of these banquets and tried to fit in with what everyone else seemed to be doing. As you might expect, it seems that some of the Christians in this church were becoming persuaded that it's okay for them to attend these banquets and even to engage in immorality at these banquets. And we're going to learn in our text that there was a woman in the church who claimed to be a prophet, she claimed to speak for God, who was persuading these Christians that, yeah, this is okay with God. And this woman's presence in the church was being tolerated. This church stands in need of an intervention, and Jesus provides that intervention in our passage today. And the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we'll observe seven acts of Jesus designed to motivate a vibrant yet sinfully tolerant church to overcome. The first thing he does, his first act, number one, is he presents himself to them as the fiery-eyed and bronze-footed Son of God. He presents Himself to them as the fiery-eyed and bronze-footed Son of God. Listen how Jesus presents Himself to the church of Thyatira in verse 18. He says to the Apostle John and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet are like burnished bronze says this. His flaming eyes of fire speak of His piercing vision that sees everything. Jesus sees with perfect discernment what everyone is doing at all times, all the way down to their every thought and motive. There is never anything in your life or in the church 
that goes unseen by Jesus. His eyes miss nothing at all. That's astonishing to me because my eyes miss a lot. And maybe yours do too. I may be looking for something around our house and open a drawer and stare right at the thing I'm looking for and still don't see it. And I will call for my wife and with her flaming eyes of fire that (laughs) see everything, she will say it's right there, honey. Jesus has eyes that see everything. And look at his feet. His feet are like burnished bronze, which John describes in chapter 1 as feet that glow like bronze that has been heated in the furnace. In other words, these are intimidating feet. It is these feet in Revelation 19 that will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. With these feet, Jesus can go wherever He wants to go. And He can leave a devastating footprint wherever He has stepped. As one writer says, with these feet, Jesus will certainly and swiftly pursue all that is evil and tread it down. In addition to describing His eyes and feet, Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of God representing himself as the royal Son of God, thereby emphasizing his deity, the majesty of his person, and the majesty of his office as king. As the Messiah king. The city of Thyatira was devoted, as I mentioned earlier, to the worship of Apollo, who was believed to be the son of Zeus. And the Roman emperor at this time claimed that he was the son of God. In fact, there were coins minted in the A.D. 90s, which is when this book of Revelation was written, on which there is an inscription identifying this Roman emperor, Domitian, as the son of God. This is what people throughout the Roman Empire believed about their emperor, And Domitian demanded to be worshipped as such. Yet Jesus is speaking to his church and he reminds them that I am the Son of God. All in all, Jesus presents himself to them as the royal Son of God with eyes like fire and feet like glowing bronze and as someone who has something to say to the people of this church. And this leads us to the second act of Jesus designed to motivate a vibrant but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number two, He commends them for the good that He sees in them. He compliments them for the good that He sees in them. Jesus has eyes of fire that see everything. And as He looks upon this church, there's much that He sees that He actually likes. Listen to what He says in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. There's a lot to love in this verse, right? We would all wish that Jesus could say these same things about us. The main verb of this sentence is the verb know, K-N-N. O-W, and there are six things that Jesus says that he knows about them. First of all, he says, I know your deeds. And it's the, their good deeds that he's talking about. Secondly, he says to them, I know your love. Speaking of their love for God and their love for one another. Speaking about their love for Jesus himself. This is actually the only church of the seven that Jesus compliments for their love. Jesus criticized, you will recall, the Ephesian church for leaving their first love, but this church seemed to be strong in the very area where the Ephesian church was weak. Thirdly, Jesus says to them, I know your faith, speaking of their faith in Christ and their embrace of sound gospel doctrine, their belief in the gospel. Fourthly, He says to them, I know your service. 
This is the Greek word. The word translated service is the Greek word that we get our English word deacon from. This word speaks of the faithful service of these Christians in meeting the practical needs of others. Fifthly, he says, I know your perseverance. Speaking of how they have endured in love and faith and service in spite of their weariness, in spite of the influences of the world around them to give up doing such things and to just live for themselves. Sixthly, and remarkably, Jesus says to them, I know that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. That's an amazing compliment from Jesus. Their deeds of love and faith and service have not evidently diminished at all since their early days as Christians, but are actually growing in fervency and maturity. Anyone watching this church at this stage of its history would notice that they are more loving than they were during their infancy as a church. In fact, they seem to be strong in exactly the area where the Ephesian church was weak, right? Jesus criticized the church of Ephesus for leaving their first love, and he called them to repent and go back and start doing the deeds they did at first. But here... He's commending the church of Thyatira for their love and for the fact that their deeds of late are even greater than their deeds were at the first. Perhaps some of these Christians in the church of Thyatira are feeling pretty smug right now and thinking, man, if the Ephesian church could just be a little more like us. But Jesus is not finished speaking to this church. Yeah, they were strong where the Ephesian church was weak, but they happened to be weak in exactly the area where the Ephesian church was strong. The Ephesian church was a discerning church that was able to expose those who claimed to be apostles but were not. But the church of Thyatira was not nearly so discerning. And this brings us to the third act of Jesus as he seeks to motivate this vibrant yet sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number three, he faults them. He criticizes them. He faults them for their toleration of a false prophetess in their midst. He faults them for their toleration of a false prophetess in their midst. Observe what he says to them in verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Amazing. So Jesus has one thing against this church. And his complaint against them begins with the words, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. His beef with them is that they are a tolerant church. And the person they are tolerating is the woman Jezebel. Almost certainly this woman's real name was not Jezebel. But Jesus calls her Jezebel because she was corrupting the church much like Jezebel corrupted Israel during the days of King Ahab in the Old Testament with the worship of Baal and all the immorality that went along with that. As for this woman that Jesus is speaking about in the church of Thyatira, listen now how he describes her. He describes her as someone who calls herself a prophetess. He refuses to call her a prophetess, but simply says that she says that she's a prophetess. She's not a prophetess who receives genuine revelation from God, but she says that she does, and making these claims causes genuine Christians to sit up and listen to what it is that she has to say, thinking that her messages are from the Lord. 
Such a woman making such a claim would not have led the Ephesian Christians astray, but the Christians in Thyatira were much more gullible. She calls herself, Jesus says, a prophetess. And then look at the success she's having. Jesus says, and she teaches and actually leads my bondservants astray. In other words, her teaching is effectively serving to cause some of the very bondservants of Jesus to go astray. These bondservants are actually true Christians who truly belong to Christ, who are being led astray by this evil woman, being led astray into thinking the way she thinks and even engaging in the deeds that she encourages. These bondservants are genuine believers in, in Jesus. And you would see that in chapter 1. These are His actual bondservants. And this is no small error that they are being deceived into by this woman. Jesus says, She teaches and leads My bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things that are sacrificed to idols. This is amazing. Jesus is complaining about the fact that this woman influences even those who are Christ's bondservants to commit acts of immorality and to go to the local idolatrous banquets and to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. Which is a stunning thing. This woman claims to be a Christian. She claims to be a prophet of God. She claims to receive revelations from God. She speaks these supposed revelations and gives teaching based on them. And in the process, she actually leads the very people of Christ astray and is getting some of them to commit acts of immorality and to dine at the pagan temple banquets. And she's assuring them that all of this is okay with God. As I said last week, this kind of thing may seem hard for us to fathom, but it's not a lot different than the nonsense that happens in churches today. And the error this woman is leading these Christians into is no different than what Paul had to deal with, with the Corinthians that he writes to in 1 Corinthians. This woman had obviously taught that these Christians had taught them the, the dualistic notion that because God is a spirit, He does not care about the physical. And therefore, what one does with his body is not important to God. She taught them that God doesn't care about what you do with your body so long as your spirit is devoted to the Lord. So it doesn't matter if you go to these banquets and eat food offered to idols and engage in sex with these prostitutes because sex and eating are just body things. And God doesn't care about what you do with your body. The truth is it does matter what we do with our bodies. According to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6, and 10, we were bought with a price and therefore we should glorify God with our bodies which are His. And we should flee from sexual immorality as Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 6. And we should flee from idolatry as he commands in 1 Corinthians 10. But that's not what this woman was teaching. She was teaching and practicing the opposite and leading some of Christ's very bondservants astray. And she was persistent in her error. In verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. The mercy of Jesus here is astounding. Evidently, He did not judge this woman right away for her sin. He sent some of His people to her, no doubt, to speak truth to her and to confront her. And He has since given her time to repent of her error, but she doesn't want to repent of her immorality, meaning that the time for judgment to come upon her is very near. And this leads us to the fourth act of Jesus as He seeks to motivate this vibrant but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number four, He promises judgment 
upon this false prophetess and those who are linked to her. He promises judgment upon this false prophetess and those who are linked to her. Listen to his promise of judgment in verse 22. These are very sobering words from Jesus. He says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Literally, Jesus is simply saying in the Greek, Behold, I will throw her on a bed. And the words of sickness are not in the Greek text, but they represent a pretty good translation of Jesus' idea here. Jesus is going to bring the judgment of sickness upon this woman, leaving her bedridden because of whatever sickness she is going to be afflicted with. In fact, Jesus here is using the present tense. He's literally saying, I am throwing her on a bed of sickness, indicating that her judgment is as good as done. Jesus has already set in motion His judgment of her. And he's not just going to judge her. Look at this. He speaks in verse 22 and says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her I'm going to throw into great tribulation. The adultery that he speaks about here is religious infidelity on the part of Christians who are allowing themselves to be seduced by this woman into dining at idolatrous feast and committing acts of immorality. Because adultery can only be committed by someone who is married or betrothed, we can infer that the people Jesus is talking about here are Christians who have been, for the moment, led astray by this woman's influence and they're guilty of great unfaithfulness and adultery against God, against Christ, their heavenly groom. And Jesus is promising here that He will throw these unfaithful Christians into great tribulation if they do not repent. And then, mercifully, He says, unless they repent of her deeds. Which means that they still had time to repent of joining this woman in her sin. If they do repent, then they can be spared the discipline that Christ is about to unleash upon those who are following this woman and her ways. As for those who prove themselves to be full-on disciples of this woman and her sinful ways, he speaks in verse 23 and makes this promise. Look at this. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. Literally, Jesus promised to kill her children with pestilence. Reads this way, I will kill her children with death. I will kill her children with death. Yeah, that's a little redundant, but it drives his point home and probably does include the idea of pestilence and disease as his instruments of killing them. Now notice here, he's speaking of her children now. He's not speaking here of true Christians who have, for the moment, been seduced into her way of thinking. He's speaking of those who are fully in league with her and who have allowed themselves to become her disciples and they're helping to spread her teaching. Jesus is promising to judge and to strike down such people who have been fully converted to this woman's ways with pestilence and death. As we learned last Sunday, guys, this is how much Jesus loves His church. So much that He's willing to strike down those who are in the church's midst who would corrupt the church with their sin. And when Jesus has executed His judgment in this way, He says, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. You might be interested to know that the Greek word translated minds here 
is used only here in the New Testament. And it literally means kidneys. Kidneys, which was viewed as being the innermost organ in a person's body. This was derived from the fact that when the priest in the Old Testament would disembowel an animal for sacrifice, the kidneys were the last organs that he would reach. Beyond that, the kidneys were viewed as the seat of emotions and passions. And the heart that Jesus refers to here in this verse was viewed very much like we view our intellect today. So Jesus is basically saying here, guys, He's saying once I get done unleashing My judgment on this woman and her disciples, everyone will know that it is I who with the flaming eyes of fire searches out and knows people's every thought and motive and emotion all the way down to the deepest parts of their being and nothing is hidden from my sight. As for what Christ will do with the Christians in the church, including the faithful ones. He says at the end of verse 23, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. This may involve earthly judgment and some form of sickness and death, like what God did to Ananias and Sapphira and some of the sinning members of the Corinthian church But primarily, Jesus is speaking here of the heavenly judgment when we all who know Him will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged by Him. The Bible teaches us in the New Testament that all of us who are born-again believers in Jesus are going to be received into heaven. But in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Apostle Paul tells us that even we as believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Even as believers, we're going to experience that judgment before the judgment seat of Christ And in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 15, Paul speaks of that day and he says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work remains, he will receive a reward... If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's going to be an awesome, amazing moment when we, even as believers, stand before Christ at the judgment. Speaking of that future day of judgment for believers, Jesus says in our text today, I will give to each one of you according to to your deeds. Speaking of reward or the loss of reward even for believers and these promises from Jesus of judgment from Jesus should have been intensely motivational for anyone involved with this woman to repent of their sin and return to the path of abstinence from idolatry and from sexual immorality. And for those who have not yet been involved with this woman and her ways, Jesus' words here would motivate them to not only abstain from her, but also to stand together with other faithful souls in the church in disciplining her out of the church and tolerating her and her disciples no longer in their midst. It is the Christians who have not yet gotten mixed up in this woman's ways that Jesus speaks to next. And this leads us to the fifth act of Jesus as He seeks to motivate this vibrant but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number five, He calls upon the faithful souls to hold fast until He comes. 
He calls upon the faithful souls to hold fast until He comes. Observe what He says to the faithful souls in this church in verse 24. He says, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching of this woman, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Jesus describes these faithful souls in a couple ways. He describes them as those who do not hold this teaching. Speaking of the teaching of this woman, he also describes them as those who have not known the deep things of Satan as they, speaking of this woman and those who follow her, call them. If you don't mind marking in your Bible You can put quotation marks around the words, the deep things, the deep things. Jesus is referring to the fact that this prophetess and the people who followed her called their teaching the deep things. I'm pretty sure they weren't going around calling their teaching the deep things of Satan, but they called their teaching the deep things, and Jesus is saying, Yeah, their teaching is the deep things, only it's the deep things of Satan. This is what some commentators call a sarcastic reversal of meaning that Jesus is doing here. One of the ways that you have probably noticed, that I have noticed, that Satan often gets false doctrine into the church sometimes is first by making sound Christian doctrine seem shallow and by making false doctrine appear deep. Christians who get caught up in abstaining from pagan feasts because they're afraid of immorality and idolatry, how shallow. They're just shallow thinkers who are simply not sophisticated enough to grasp the deeper theological concepts that we understand That's the way this Jezebel and her disciples were talking. They claimed to be deeper Christians who knew deeper truths and concepts. And Jesus is saying, they're right. They do know the deep things of Satan. And to these faithful Christians who have not bought into this woman's teaching and come to know the deep things of Satan, Jesus says, I place no other burden on you. His words here actually imply that he has already put a burden on them, right? He says, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. And that burden that he's already put on them is to stop tolerating this woman in their midst. That burden is the burden of practicing Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, on this woman and her disciples. And if she and they refuse to repent, to discipline them out of the church... Beyond that burden, Jesus says, I place no other burden on you except one thing. Observe what he says in verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. In other words, nevertheless, the one burden that I have already given to you as a responsibility in this situation, I will give you this one additional responsibility And that is, hold fast until I come. Jesus is not talking here about His second coming. He's talking about the moment when He comes in judgment upon this woman and those who are caught up in her ways. He's saying to them, My judgment may not come tomorrow. It may not even come this week or this month. But it will come in perfect timing. And in the meantime, hold fast until I come. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Hold fast to the path of purity. And don't let anyone seduce you away from the right path and get you to let go of gospel truth. And soon, you do that, soon enough, Jesus says, the righteousness of your choice to hold fast will be vindicated. To motivate the faithful souls in this church to stay faithful and even to motivate those who've been caught up in 
this woman's sinful web to break free, Jesus speaks a great promise to those who overcome. And this brings us to the sixth act of Jesus as He seeks to motivate this vibrant but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Listen to His amazing promises beginning in verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. These are staggering promises for the overcomer. We've seen that the word overcomes means to triumph or to be victorious. We've learned from Revelation 12:11 that you overcome Satan through the blood of the Lamb, through the blood of Jesus that was shed at the cross so that sinners could have atonement for their sins. And through the Word of God and making that your testimony. And so we have learned that you overcome Satan. You're victorious over Satan by putting your trust in Jesus and His blood shed for you at the cross. Now, what's interesting is up to this point in Revelation 2, Jesus has always said, He who overcomes. And then He launches into a promise. But here... In verse 26, he adds an explanatory word regarding what overcoming specifically looks like. He says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. So whatever overcoming entails, it entails keeping the deeds of Jesus until the end. To be a keeper of the deeds of Jesus until the end of one's life is to live as Jesus lived and to love others as Jesus loved and to do what He commands and to keep abstaining from what He prohibits and to persevere in this obedience to the end of your life. Those who persevere in faith and obedience to Christ in this way thereby demonstrate that they are truly born again children of God who are the true overcomers to whom Christ has really given the gift of genuine faith. I love what Ian Paul says on this score. He says in describing saving faith that's truly a gift from Jesus, he says, and I quote, the faith of Jesus is not merely the excited sprint of enthusiasm of those new to the faith, but the committed marathon of a long obedience in the same direction. That's what sanctification is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And Jesus says here, that those who persist in this long obedience to the end of their lives are overcomers. And this doesn't mean that such individuals are perfect, but it means that even when they stumble and fall, that they obey Christ's command to repent and they return to Jesus and continue their long obedience in the right direction. To the one who overcomes in this way, Jesus says, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. This is an astonishing promise from Jesus. When you read passages like Psalm 2, God promises to give the Messiah the nations as His inheritance. And it's the Messiah who is said to rule these nations with a rod of iron. And yet in this passage, Jesus is saying that He's going to actually transfer His own authority over the nations to the overcomer. Allowing the overcomer to be personally involved in ruling over these nations with a rod of iron as an agent of Jesus. 
that Jesus will even allow the overcomer to participate in executing justice against those who need to be broken into pieces for their wickedness. At His second coming, Jesus, we know, will defeat the armies of the Antichrist and He will establish His reign upon the earth for a thousand years. And what we learn here is that Jesus will execute His rule in the Millennial Kingdom through the agency of His overcomers. And we see this affirmed not just in our passage today, but elsewhere in Revelation also. In Revelation 5.10, we're told that those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ will reign upon the earth. In Revelation 20, verse 6, we're told that the people of Christ will reign with Him for a thousand years. We're not just going to live under His reign. We're going to reign with Him for a thousand years. In Revelation 22, 5, we're told that the saints in heaven will reign forever and ever. And in our passage today, Jesus is promising all of this to the one who overcomes. If you are someone who overcomes Satan through the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony and through your long obedience to Christ until the end, you won't just live forever with Christ, you will reign forever with Christ. You will be one of His agents through which He executes His rule. And that's a high privilege Additionally, Jesus offers yet another promise to the overcomer in verse 28. He says, And I will give to him, the overcomer, the morning star. What is the morning star, you ask? Perhaps this symbolic language bothers you. Maybe you're thinking, man, the book of Revelation is filled with so many symbols that are so confusing. And now here's another symbol that I have to figure out what it means. Well, don't despair. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus is speaking to John and says, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So there you go. What is the morning star? It's Jesus. And Jesus here is promising to give Himself to the one who overcomes. The ultimate reward that we as Christians will receive in heaven is not a crown, it's not streets of gold, but it's Jesus Himself as He gives Himself to us forever and ever. These are tremendous promises that Jesus gives to those who overcome. And these promises can be for you this morning. Maybe you have made so many poor choices in your life that you think that you are a loser. You can actually change that today and be a triumphant winner by believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you have never done that, if you have never seen your bankruptcy and your need for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus, come to Him today. Look to Him as your Lord and Savior. Call upon His name and believe in Him. And Jesus will be delighted to save you and to fulfill the very promises that He makes for the overcomer in this passage. Well, Jesus has said a lot to the church of Thyatira and He wants them to hear every word He has spoken. And this leads us to the final act of Jesus as He seeks to motivate this vibrant but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number seven, He calls upon all to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He calls upon all to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Listen to His call in verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus wants the Christians in Thyatira to hear what He has just said to them. He wants every other church in Asia Minor to hear what He has just said to the Christians in Thyatira. And He wants all of us gathered here today to hear what He is saying to this church. 
And notice here in verse 29, guys, how Jesus evidently views whatever He says to the churches as being what the Spirit says. There is no doubt that the false prophetess among them was going around telling people that her teaching was from the Spirit. Her revelations were revealed to her through the Spirit. But Jesus is saying, that can't be because the Spirit only says what I say. And Jesus is saying the opposite of what this woman had been saying. Jesus and the Holy Spirit will never, ever give conflicting counsel. And don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. I've literally had Christian people at times tell me when they've been so deceived by their sin that the Holy Spirit was leading them to do something that Jesus teaches against. And they even admitted that what they were doing was contrary to the teaching of Jesus, but they said, the Holy Spirit is leading me to do this. But according to Jesus' language here, whatever Jesus says to the churches, that's what the Spirit says. Jesus and the Spirit are always on the same page. They're always in complete agreement saying the same thing. And we must believe that. Well, there's a lot that we have learned from Jesus in this letter of His to the church in Thyatira. We pointed out some of these things as we've gone along this morning. Let me make just two points as we wrap things up today. First of all, when we read Jesus' words to this church and His words to the church of Ephesus, we're reminded that it's not good enough to simply avoid error on only one end of the spectrum. We must also avoid the opposite error too. As Warren Wiersbe says, and some of you would have read this back during the summer, and I quote, it is interesting to contrast the church of Ephesus and Thyatira. The Ephesian church was weakening in its love yet faithful to judge false teachers, while the people in the assembly at Thyatira were growing in their love, but too tolerant of false doctrine. Both extremes must be avoided in the church. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. Unquote. And that's so true. Jesus' letter to the Ephesian church and the church of Thyatira here teaches us that we don't have to decide between being a loving church and a doctrinally sound church. We need to be both. We don't have to decide between being a loving church and a church that is intolerant of sin. We don't have that dilemma. Man, are we going to be a loving church or are we going to be intolerant of sin? No, we need to be both a loving church that is intolerant of sin. And there is no excuse for error at either extreme. When you read Christ's letters to these two churches, you see that to err on either extreme literally brings the discipline of Christ upon us. So to avoid these errors on both extremes, we, we have to be a discerning church, right? Willing to make the kinds of distinctions that Jesus makes in our passage today. However unpopular making those kinds of distinctions may be for us to do today. Many of you will recall Rob Bell, the man who left his pastorate uh, the church in Minnesota that he had founded several years ago. And he has since come to affirm the homosexual lifestyle as good and holy. Back in May of 2016, Rob Bell was being interviewed and he said these words, I don't actually use the word Christian much. 
Because I think Jesus would be mortified that a religion with very strong codes of in and out had started in his name. I think that Jesus, at the heart of his life and message, was a call to universal healing and solidarity, not inventing more labels and categories to divide us. Unquote. Really? Jesus did not invent labels and categories that divide people? What Bible has Rabel been reading? How about just simply looking at what Jesus does in our passage today? Jesus calls a particular woman Jezebel. That's kind of a divisive label that probably made this woman and those who followed her feel a little bit alienated. Jesus speaks of a group of people in this church as those who commit adultery with her. That's kind of a harsh way to put it. Jesus speaks of people being this woman's spiritual children as opposed to being God's children. And He speaks of this woman's teaching as the deep things of Satan. It doesn't sound to me like Jesus is interested in any solidarity with this group of people in the church. On the other side of the spectrum, Jesus speaks of the rest who do not hold to her teaching. He speaks of the rest who do not know the deep things of Satan. He speaks of he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end as opposed to those who don't overcome and who don't keep his deeds until the end. Jesus sounds pretty judgmental to be speaking in such categories that divided the people in the church of Thyatira. And He comes off as pretty judgmental and specifically faulting this church for tolerating certain people in their midst who were influencing others toward immorality and idolatry. So what do we do with all of this? And whom do we listen to? Rob Bell? Or Jesus? Well, let's see. Jesus is the one with eyes of fire and feet of bronze. He's the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. He's the Son of God who was once dead but has come to life again and now lives forevermore and His face shines like the sun in its full power. Hillary Clinton and William Barber and Rob Bell, they don't have eyes of fire. They don't have feet of bronze. They don't have the sharp two-edged sword coming out of their mouth. They have never died and come to life again. And they are not the Son of God. So whom do we listen to? Them or Jesus? I'm going to listen to Jesus, and I hope you will too. Let's pray together. Lord, there are many voices that abound in our culture today that are deceiving voices that employ scriptural terminology good and spiritual on the surface and even sounds deep. But you tell us that anything that is contrary to you and your ways are to be rejected by us. I pray that you would give us here at Cornerstone, ears to hear what your Spirit is that we would not confuse your voice. That we would follow you. 
I pray that if there's any here this morning who have never bowed their head and come to You in humility and brokenness and called upon You for salvation, Savior who delights to save sinners who cling to Your mercy. Help us, Lord, to hold until You come and to engage in this amazing overcoming journey of a long obedience in the same direction. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.